You're listening to the CFMEU Mining and Energy Podcast. Yes, welcome to our July 2020 episode. I'm Tim Brunero. Well, the coronavirus crisis continues to be felt at the coalface, with miners at Appen Mine in the southern coalfields calling out South 32 for using the COVID-19 situation as an excuse to cut wages, but more importantly, to dial down safety. There's been a dramatic change in uh, contractor arrangements with South 32. So basically what they've done is they've terminated contracts with Mastermind and Nexus, two very big contract companies in the southwestern districts, employing about 250 people at the Up and Colliery. What they've effectively done is terminated the 250 and forced them to take up employment if they wish to with another contract company called Workpack at a substantial cost, both we believe in safety and remuneration. Southwestern District Vice President Bob Timms. He says every member he speaks to is worried about safety. As you heard, South32 has torn up its contract with labour hire company Mastermind with 200 workers cut and 50 workers from Nexus told to go. Now these miners have woken up to see their own jobs advertised online through PIMS and Workpack with slashed wages and conditions and with bonuses no longer based on safety but on productivity. Currently the bonus scheme is centred around safety incentives. If the guys carry out proactive safety inspections such as observations and take twos, they get paid their bonus to work safely basically. The change that South 32 is driving with these contract uh, companies now is that it'll be around productivity. So the more work you do, the more you get paid. What we believe that will do is absolutely drive unsafe behaviour into South 32 collieries and um, the guys will end up taking shortcuts to make up money that they've lost with reduced wages. As Bob Tim says, bleeding into and compounding these safety concerns is concern at wage reduction. The temptation will be to take shortcuts on safety to make up for the big pay cut. The two are linked. A dramatic cut in the hourly rate and the bonus. So the hourly rate's going to be cut anywhere up to 5 or $6. And the bonus will be an at-risk bonus scheme, where the bonus scheme they currently have is not at risk apart from the $70 or $80 of safety KPI. This amounts to, with some members, around fifty dollars to $60,000 a year. Bob Timms has a simple message for South32. I say to South32, do the responsible thing. Don't put our members' safety at risk by putting uh, incentive-based bonus schemes in place. Don't hide under the uh, veil of COVID-19 and rip off Illawarra mine workers. Illawarra mine workers should be employed as permanent employees by the coal companies. There's no need to, you know, prop up your operations with labour hire. At the coalface at Appen Mine, workers are angry and also concerned if they speak out, they'll be targeted by local employers. One coal miner from the Appen Mine spoke to me on condition of anonymity. This is not his real voice. The bonus scheme that's set up, you know, it's compromising the safety of the men. You know, we report hazards in our workplace and if we do that now, in the new agreement, we'll potentially lose our bonus. He says while he's worried about his physical well-being with small kids, he also has their welfare to think about. They want me to take a pay cut of up to 40% to do exactly the same job. It affects my family. It affects me personally. I've worked hard. And we're not getting rewarded for it. We're, we're getting ripped off. I've got two small children. Yeah, what it means for us is that we have to probably cut into our savings while we wait for myself to start another job. 
My wife has lost her job due to COVID and it just means putting off any chance of a holiday during the school holidays, that kind of thing. And it's fair to say he's upset at South 32. Well, I think they just don't care. South 32 don't care at all about what's happening to us contractors. They don't care about our family situation. They just want the cheapest rate they can get for us to do the same job that we've been doing, you know, for some of us for the past five years at the mine and, you know, doing well in it. Another worker at Appen we spoke to also remembers well the events of 2015 when over 300 labour hire workers at the mine walked off the job over similar issues and came away with a decisive win. Back then, their behaviour caused a revolt against the company and just about the entire contract workforce walked off-site at Appen and refused to come to work. We basically took a stand against the company and protested that these continual pay cuts on our hourly rate and bonuses and stuff wasn't fair. The permanent workforce weren't affected at all. It was just the contractors that were being targeted and it's all basically a big game of chess for them to get the permanent workforce rates down to that level as well. They sort of have to start with us first, so in the event the permanent workforce goes on strike, they can use our labour to keep the mine operational. Needless to say, this miner is also unhappy he's taken a massive financial hit. I just put a deposit on a new home and the amount that I plan to borrow for this home I'd comfortably be able to afford under what I was previously paid by Mastermind. And now under the work pack agreement, it's going to be a bit of a struggle with wife and kids and this new house and the home loan. It's a good thing interest rates are quite low at the moment, but if interest rates start increasing, it's going to get very hard. Under the Mastermind agreement, there were pay rises in there as well over the next few years. We were negotiating a new enterprise agreement at the time when things started to go downhill and South 32 cancelled our contract. So things were looking really good and now this new Workpack Enterprise Agreement is locked into three years at the lowest rates the industry has ever seen. He's also miffed at how South 32 has been treating its workers. They say they value their workforce. Their core values, which they drum into our head, are care, trust, togetherness and excellence. We don't feel any of those, to be honest. If you care about your workforce, you don't conduct business practices like this, where you just turn people's lives upside down for the sake of reducing their hourly rates. They also preach a lot of things about mental health, and they do do some great things with mental health workshops on site. However, it's just very hypocritical that they want to be an employer that's conscious of people's mental health, but then they do things like this at the worst possible time. It's a very opportunistic business move with coronavirus and everything. There's men out there whose wives have lost their jobs as well due to this. So they're down to a zero income family. It's just un-Australian. That's the best way I could put it. There you go, a worker from the Appen mine. Appen happens to be the biggest underground coal mine in the Southern Hemisphere. And it's understandable that its workforce has safety front of mind. After all, underground mining has had a string of shocking disasters over the years. And many have anniversaries in this month, July. In fact, the deadliest month for Australian miners is July, and no one quite knows why. According to our former General Secretary, Andrew Vickers, the tragedies in July started way back in 1902, with a massive explosion at the Mount Kembla coal mine, which was heard 11 k's away. 96 men and boys died in the Mount Kembla disaster in 1902 in what was to be the worst industrial disaster in Australia's uh, history. 
A subsequent inquiry found that there were dangerous methane gas levels in the mine and the source of ignition was the naked flames which were used by the miners uh, to see underground. The bulleye seam in which the disaster occurred uh, is a notoriously gassy seam. This disaster followed an earlier disaster in the same seam at Old Bulleye Colliery in 1887 where 81 men and boys were killed. The shock to the nation was so great, the New South Wales Parliament suspended sittings. 96 men and boys killed. Incredible. It was to be about 70 years before July became deadly again, in 1972 in Queensland at Box Flat near Ipswich. At about 6pm on the 30th of July, a fire was detected underground. A team went under to check it out. A second team went in some hours later to try and make temporary seals, and it was then that a tremendous explosion shattered the mine. Here's a local describing what happened that morning. Oh, someone was screaming out on the road, that's right. It was old Merv Jensen, the old super, laying in the middle of the road with a brick in his head sideways. I can still see it. And Battery said, well, it's your bloody turn this time, Waldo. I'll hold him, you pull it out. And we didn't realise at that stage that the fellas over in the belt tunnel over the road they were blown to pieces. And uh, we were only concerned about number seven. When she blew, we got bits of bodies in the in the lake. Uh, they were picking up with the scoop and picking up. And I think the least said about that, the better. That's eyewitnesses from the Box Flat disaster speaking as part of the documentary Blood on the Coal, which you can find on YouTube. Of the 18 men killed, eight were members of the rescue squad that had been called to the mine when the fire was detected. In the face of danger of further explosions arising from the raging fire, the grim decision was made to seal the mine, leaving 14 victims entombed. A funeral service was held at the top of the mine. Andrew Vickers remembers that day well. When the box flat disaster took place, I was a cadet mine surveyor at the Gunyala Open Cut Mine in central Queensland. Box flat was pretty close to my heart because my father had worked there uh, prior to becoming Queensland Secretary of the Miners' Union. I had two uncles who were employed at box flat at the time of the disaster, and uh, yet another uncle, although working at a different mine, uh, was a member of the Mines Rescue Brigade. There had been a fire underground and attempts were being made to uh, seal the fire off to starve it of oxygen. The ventilation fan, which had been turned off uh, over the weekend, um, when it was turned back on, methane-laden air was pulled back over the fire. That led to the initiation of the explosion. The end result was that 18 men were dead, 14 of whom were entombed, never to be recovered. And of the 18, men who died, eight were members of the Mines Rescue Service or, as it was known at the time, the Mines Rescue Brigade. As a result of the tragedy, personal filter self-rescuers were introduced for all underground miners. Gas chromatographs were placed at the surface of mines to analyse mine gas samples and modern-day firefighting equipment was installed underground. Despite these measures, tragedy struck again seven years later at the Appen Mine in New South Wales. An underground explosion three kilometres from the pit head and 600 metres underground killed 14 miners. In the Appen disaster, 13 men died underground. It was in the same seam as uh, Mount Kembla. An inquiry led by uh, former judge Justice Gorham 
found that uh, methane had built up in the mine and a fault in an underground auxiliary ventilation fan initiated the gas explosion. The gas explosion then propagated a coal dust explosion that very fortunately was limited by stone dusting and installed water barriers. Had that stone dusting and water barriers not been installed, the death toll most likely would have been much greater. In 1986, July turned deadly again, this time in Queensland at Maurer. I was district president of the Coal Miners Union in Queensland when the, the disaster at Maurer number four occurred. Initially, um, there was some conjecture as to whether or not it was a, uh, a wind blast or whether there had in fact been an explosion. Uh, history confirms, of course, that there was indeed an explosion. The subsequent investigation and inquiry um, confirmed that there had been a large fall of roof uh, displacing methane gas, which had collected in the roof, methane being lighter than air. And uh, indeed, after scientific investigation, um, that the most likely source of ignition was a uh, locked flame safety lamp, which was used to actually detect methane in underground coal mines. It had been in use for over 100 years. It's still in use um, in some places throughout the world. But, and there still remains a lot of conjecture as to whether or not um, the uh, lamp itself was a source of ignition or whether it was some other source. After it was concluded the most likely explanation for the explosion was a flame safety lamp, they were withdrawn from service. The locked flame safety lamp was withdrawn following the inquiry almost immediately throughout mines in Queensland and slightly more slowly removed throughout New South Wales. It is still used throughout the world. And there is some degree of romanticism attached to the lock flame safety lamp. It's uh, almost universally uh, a symbol of uh, underground coal mining. Uh, if you see a, a photo or a, a copy of a lock flame safety lamp, you know that the person has some association with, uh, with underground coal mining. But there's little or no doubt uh, in my mind, certainly, that the lamp was the cause of the source of the ignition. And as I said, that's been uh, confirmed by scientific investigation. There you go, deadly July. We do hope this July is a safe one. You're listening to the CFMEU Mining and Energy Podcast. I'm Tim Brunero. Check us out on the podcast app if you have an iPhone or an iPad and do us a favour, subscribe and tell a few of your mates to subscribe as well. Oh, and I just wanted to mention, you can actually speed up the playback of your podcast. Check it out. I listen to most podcasts at one and a half times just to smash them out because I'm pretty short on time. Love that function. Most podcast players allow you to do it. Michael O'Connor is the National Secretary of the Construction, Forestry, Mining, Maritime and Energy Union. We thought we might get the bird's eye view from him and find out what the union's been doing to keep the country running across all its divisions, not just mining and energy, but also the construction division, the maritime division and the manufacturing division. Nearly all the industries that we cover were deemed to be essential to the economy. All the members of the construction general division, their activists, their delegates, their officers, their organisers, senior officials, uh, working with um, employers in many instances, were able to keep tens of thousands of people on construction sites working, which was critical for the Australian economy during this difficult time. And similarly, the the mining division, mining energy division did the same. Um, you know, where would we be if the power plants had shut? 
where would we be if the mining dispute shut? And of course, uh, the maritime division, both its seafarers and its wharfies, again, um, making sure that um, essential goods were getting through to the ports and some exports still continuing. Initially, um, we probably got hit hardest with those members who were reliant on the retail industry, because that's, you know, the retail industry, apart from the sort of supermarkets, all really got hit badly in clothes. And so those members of ours who were involved in particularly clothing, textile and footwear, uh, got hit pretty early and pretty and pretty quickly. And so we had a number of places close or go on short weeks, um, three-day weeks, four-day weeks. Well, I just want to say again, you know, to the members of the union, through their, their efforts and their contribution and their and the way they've gone about their job and the way they've ensured the proper health and safety procedures that take place. We were able to keep in industry, the, the power generation industry, the construction industry, manufacturing, maritime industry sectors all going and uh, they should be proud for what they've done and their contribution they've made and I hope that the community recognises the contribution they've made to this country. It's been a pretty tough time for all. As for kick-starting the economy again, Michael O'Connor is not convinced the government's housing package focused on expensive renovations will be enough to keep the housing construction sector going. What's needed is a plan to build social housing. Going forward, though Australia has some massive economic challenges now, what we're very concerned about, I think, is future construction work and, of course, uh, the impact of uh, the reduction of housing starts. Housing is a key driver of the economic activity. A uh, house being built needs you know, bricks, timber floors, frames, doors, windows, all those things that our members produce. And so um, we're very keen to see government intervention, both at the state and federal level, to ensure we do something about housing starts. Unfortunately, the federal government uh, package they announced uh, recently is no, no way good enough to sustain the over a million jobs that are dependent on the construction and housing industry, both people who work on site and plus all those manufacturing jobs that are dependent on it. And that's a real concern. The package the government, federal government announced was less than a uh, billion dollars and nowhere near enough uh, needed to keep the demand up. And that renovation program is quite, it's badly designed, it's way too small. Like it was $900 million, I think. Well, if you're trying to support uh, over a million jobs, a $900 million package doesn't go far. Just work out the maths for starters, but right? it isn't going to create real demand at all. And um, the other problem we've got with housing is that a lot of our housing demand in this country has been driven by population growth. Everybody knows our population growth is dependent on immigration. Immigration is now stalled. And so how do we create demand? And certainly the union, the ACTU, uh, other organisations, some governments have all pointed to the fact that one way we can create demand is actually do something about social housing and low-cost housing or affordable housing, I should say, because we need no housing and, and housing shortages is critical in this country. So we could actually deal with a social problem and create work producing real things for real people, which is affordable housing across this country. Now, looking forward, um, we're really concerned about probably September October. It's sort of like a perfect storm, really. You could have a situation where um, the impact of lack of housing starts really uh, bites uh, and really knocks the economy. And then you've got JobKeeper supposed to be finishing. And that's you now we've got a lot of people now in particularly the manufacturing sectors that we cover on JobKeeper. And so it, it looks like it could be a pretty grim time. So I think that the union's role now is working with other unions and, and some progressive employers to try and get the government to do more to stimulate the economy post-September, to do more about intervening in the economy.
Michael O'Connor also says the government needs to back the manufacturing sector so we can get Aussies buying Aussie products again. At critical times, we've had essential medical equipment or personal protection gear not being able to be supplied because we were relied on imports. So there's an opportunity there if the government intervenes, working with employers and the union to try and increase our manufacturing capacity here and give us a bit more security about supply of essential manufactured goods, uh, particularly in the health sector, but probably other sectors of the economy. The supply chain being disrupted also means that there's a whole range of manufactured goods we could now make in this country uh, if we get the right investment settings and the right government support. So like in every good, every good crisis, there's some opportunities that sometimes are there to be grabbed. And if we have a proactive federal government and proactive state governments, there might be a case where we can actually um, revitalise some of manufacturing in this country, which I think the community would support. And certainly I know all our members would support because all our members are always demanding that the union support Australian-made campaigns. Uh, and that would be good for local communities and, and the Australian economy. He also says the government should have been looking to the opposition for help when it comes to dealing with big crises. Given that many on the Labor Party front bench helped guide Australia through the 2008 global financial crisis better than any country in the world. There are a number of people in the federal opposition who dealt with the global financial crisis. So they have a level of expertise and understanding about what you need to do in a major economic crisis, which should have been utilised more by the government. I think the, the role that the Labor government um, played in the GFC was uh, massive and it was one of the best governments in the world to do, deal with the GFC and there's a number of the people who dealt with the GFC still in Parliament uh, including the Leader of the Opposition and I do know one thing a lot of the problems we've got now which this government hasn't been able to deal with would have been dealt with a lot better if we had had a Labor government in place. Michael O'Connor says some people are now understanding what unions have been saying for decades about the pitfalls of mass casualisation. Well I think that the community or many in the community who hadn't thought about the impact or social impact of casualisation or labour hire have realised how that does impact on the whole community. So a situation where you've got over a million workers that have no, well, sorry, when you've got millions of workers that don't have sick leave, for instance, because of casualisation or labour hire in the middle of a pandemic um, causes huge social problems, huge economic problems and huge health problems because it's really difficult to manage a pandemic when so many people don't have access to sick leave or leave. National Secretary of the CFMMEU, Michael O'Connor. Look, one final thing. Let's end with a butte poem by Matt Hoffman from the Appen Lodge in the Southern District. It's called We Are Coal. In fact, we might let it play us out. Talk to you next month. As we travelled down that deep, dark hole... We remember thus, our history holds. We enter darkness with lights ahead. There holds history above our heads. We remember our fallen, our fallen friends. Ones who loved, whom can't love again. We take pride past every shift. As we travel down, back down that drift, we are blackened as we return, surfacing a source we all need burn. For we are the ones who take the toll. We are family 
We are miners. We are coal.